following message was recorded live at Three Strands Church. We hope it will bless you, encourage you, and challenge you in your journey of faith. We'd love to pray for you or answer any questions you have. Message us at threestrands.church slash contact. So we're right in the middle of a series called Gym Class. And this series is um, all about how to have a faith that works, exercising our faith, growing up, getting stronger in our faith. We're studying through the book of James, written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. We're calling him Jim for short, and he's our uh, gym instructor for this class. And so we've been studying through kind of verse by verse through this um, book. This is the third week. Is that right? Third week so far. Before we dig into it today, I just want to say, like, the band was excellent today. You guys sounded great. Yeah. Even the ones who weren't in the band, some of them were standing around me. They were great. You guys sounded great, too. So it was excellent today. I really appreciate that. Um, I remember like saying to our church before we had a band and before we had a kids class, and I'm like, this church is a great church. This church is still a great church. I'm not bashing your church if you're from another church. So there's lots of good churches out there. But uh, this church is a great church. And I remember telling everybody back then, I said, this church is going to be a great church even after we have a great band and a great kids class. And it won't be because we have a great band and a great kids class. It's because from day one, we've been super committed to there only being one hero at this church. And it's not me. It's not some deacons. It's not the people who have been here the longest. It's Jesus and Jesus only. And so as long as we continue to keep Jesus as the hero, this will be a great place for people to come and hear the truth of grace from God and uh, be able to respond in faith to it. So I'm excited about today. We're going to baptize some people later in the church service in case you were unaware of that. Uh, So we're going to be baptizing some people later. You'll hear from some of them, some of their stories and I want you to know up front, like, I prayed for you today and all week. You're like, you don't even know who I am, maybe. I'm like, I still prayed for you this week because I knew that there would be people walking through the doors today who would be coming here to see somebody get baptized, but this would be the day they get baptized. That you come through the doors today and God's going to wake you up to some of his truth. He's going to shower you with some of his grace. And he's going to beg your heart to respond to him. And I hope you will. I hope you'll have the courage to step out in faith, follow Jesus, and decide to get baptized with all these other ones who are getting baptized today. And so um, I prayed for you this week that you would have the courage to kind of act on what you hear from God's Word today. This isn't really the book of the Bible you'd go to most often to preach at a baptism service, to share the gospel with people. In fact, I told everybody in week one that James writes the book with very little mention of like coming to faith in Christ, very little mention of the gospel. He writes this book to Christian Jews scattered around the known world at that time, and he writes it specifically to believers. He's not thinking that the people he's writing to need to hear the gospel. He's thinking the people he's writing to are already following Jesus. And so you get very little of him trying to convince you to follow Jesus. He writes assuming you are already following Jesus, and he's trying to challenge our faith so that we'll grow up and get stronger. It was written about 10 years after Jesus left earth and went back to heaven. And so it's the newest New Testament book. It's the earliest one written. And so up until this point, you only have the Old Testament. And now James writes this letter and he scatters it around to all the Christians in the known world. And this is kind of his advice. Like, I know you have the Old Testament. You understand Judaism and, and you've come to faith in Christ and you're following Jesus. And I want to give you a book of kind of practical advice of how to live your Christian life how to make your Christian life work in the real world. And so it's written a lot like the Old Testament book of Proverbs. There's a lot of kind of like one-liners and, and small snippets of wisdom, wise statements. In this small chap, five-chapter book, uh, James quotes the Old Testament 22 times. And he mentions 
15 different teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. So it's the closest New Testament book we have to an Old Testament book. It's like this kind of bridge book that gives us like all the Old Testament truth and all of Jesus' teaching. And then it says like, here's how you apply all that to life today if you're a Christian. And so I know enough about McCreary County to know that almost everybody you run into in McCreary County says they're a Christian. Almost everybody. And James is going to talk about us today. And it might be offensive. I hope it doesn't offend you so much you hate my guts. But if you do, I can live with that because I just want to speak God's truth. Have us all look at it together. You won't be the first person that's hated me. That's okay. But um, so I want to just recap for you. So in week one, James talked about facing difficult times, right? And so our big takeaway from week one that was, was that no matter how difficult the trial or the trouble, no matter how intense the temptation, the answer to how do you deal with life when it feels unfixable, how do you fix what feels unfixable, is that you press into the lordship of Jesus. You keep obeying Jesus Even when the trial or the trouble seems difficult, even when the temptation feels intense, you just press into the Jesus way even harder. And so many people, when when things get tough and when temptation is intense, they don't press into the Jesus way harder. They run in the opposite direction. They Jonah that thing. Not not this Jonah, but the Bible's Jonah, right? They kind of Jonah that thing. And they run the opposite direction. And so James has challenged us, if you're a Christian... If you say you're following Jesus, then when difficult times come, because they're coming, and when temptation hits you, because it will hit you, press into Jesus' way even harder. Submit, bend your knee, bow your head to his authority and lordship over your life, and just keep doing what he says to do, whether it makes sense or not, whether you can see the end or not. Then last week in week two, James kind of like got in our business. And he said, there's a, a faith you can have. And that faith ought to drive you to act like Jesus acted. And if it doesn't drive you to live the way Jesus lived, then it's not faith, it's fake. And I hope that was eye-opening for some of us who were here last week. Because if you walk around this county specifically and, and anywhere like kind of in the Bible Belt of the United States and a lot of places around the world, you can ask 100 people, are you a Christian? They'd all say yes. And yet James seems to indicate that like our faith ought to drive our behavior. Our faith ought to drive us to live the way Jesus did. I shared with you from 1 John chapter 2 verse 6 where he says, if you claim to live in God, you ought to live and act like Jesus lived and acted. And that's hard to do. I don't really like that. But that's the truth. And now I said last week, he's going to double down on that today. This subject is so important. He's going to double down on this kind of same idea from last week and then just expand it a little bit. I want to share it with you. We're going to be in James chapter 2. James chapter 2. I just want to read. It kind of hits it hard to start with. Here it is, verse 14. He says this, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters? What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? What good is it? Is it worth anything? Does it make a difference what you say you believe? You you can talk the game, but like, are you walking the game? Shouldn't your behaviors match your beliefs? Shouldn't your actions match your attitudes? I think James is saying yes. It's like a rhetorical question. Like, obviously, what you do ought to reflect what you believe on the inside, right? 
I mean, what good is it if you say you have faith, but you don't act on it? You don't do anything with it. John Calvin said it this way. If I can find it, I lost it in my notes. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. And that couldn't be more true. And that's really what we're talking about today and last week. What good is it if you say all the right things, but it doesn't change anything about you? What good is it if you talk and speak like a Christian, but you live as if you're in charge of your own life? What good does that do? Can that, and then he, and then he asks us this question at the end of verse 14. It's the question we're going to ask and he's going to answer for us today. He says, can that kind of faith save anybody? That's really the big question for today. I want to ask you, can that faith save anybody? If you say all the right things and you know all the answers and you have all the wall art from Hobby Lobby and your Facebook posts are super spiritual, but it doesn't change anything about the way you live, is that kind of faith the faith that saves you? Now, What's so alarming about this for me as I was studying through it this week is like, we don't think this way. We would like to think that the world is super obvious. That there's those out there that are evil and those out there that are good. That there's those out there that hate God and those out there that love God. That there's atheists and Christians and there's nobody in between. James seems to present this idea that there's a kind of faith that is phony. That they look like they love Jesus, they say all the right things, and they don't even know it's them. That's what's so scary about it. They're a danger to themselves and others. And they don't even know it. Because they have all the answers. And they all believe in Jesus. And they all believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And they all believe that Jesus is God's son. And yet James seems to be writing to people and saying, you can have some kind of faith that's dead and some kind of faith that's living. And we need to know what the difference is between the two. He's not talking to the Jesus-hating, you know, human sacrifice, kind of like pagan God-worshiping tribes out there. No, he's talking to us. The ones who know what to say when somebody asks us, are we a Christian? The ones who know what to say when somebody asks us to tell them about our faith. And we say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus is the only way. And we spout off all these cliches we've heard in church growing up or we saw somebody post on their social media. And yet nothing on the inside of us has changed. Nothing we do reflects what we say we believe. You say you have faith. But James's question is, do you show you have faith? And so often the book of James gets presented in churches as this contrast between faith and works. If you kind of grew up in church or you've studied the Bible a lot, maybe you've heard that before, that, that James is kind of presenting this argument between faith and works. But that's really not true. What James is presenting in his letter is not the difference between faith and works and saying one is right and one is wrong. He's presenting the difference between genuine faith and phony faith. He's presenting the difference between dead faith and living faith. Between faith that can save you and faith that can't save you. That's really the contrast in his book. So what I want to do now is just read you the rest of this passage. Because he's going to spend the next about 11 verses, and he's just going to list five examples for us, one right after another. It's a little too many. Sometimes my wife will be like, you overshare examples when you're preaching. I know, Allison, you're thinking like, who would criticize my preaching? Trust me, 
it gets, it gets its fair share of critique, okay? But uh, she's like, sometimes you overshare examples. Like, people get it. Just move on, you know? And so uh, James is going to pull a David today, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it. Because he's going to overshare. He's going to give us five examples of this idea he's talking about. What good is it if you say you have faith, but it doesn't change anything about the way you live? Let me read all five of them to you and then just walk back and kind of share them each with you as we go. So starting in verse 15 in James chapter 2, here's what he says. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye and have a good day. Around here they say, praying for you, brother, right? Goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself, unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Example number two. Now someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Example number three in verse 19. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Example number four, starting in verse 21. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Example number five in verse 25. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. There is a lot in there. He overexampled this thing, right? In case you didn't get it, he's answering the question for you. Can this kind of faith save you? No. You got it? Like, that's the answer. In case he didn't drive it home for us enough, that's the answer. So let me just back up through these five examples he gives. I named them all something to help me remember them. It's not the Bible, just my words, okay? I just read you God's words. Those are the words that matter. But I want to use my my titles or phrases for these because it helps me remember the five examples he gave. So I called the very first one he shared the not-my-problem faith, okay? So I want you to be on the lookout For if it's possible that one of these types of faith is your kind of faith. Because James is presenting all of these as the kind of faith that can't save you. It's dead and useless. It has no impact. It's worthless. Okay, so the first one is the, it's not my problem faith. And he says, imagine you see somebody who's hungry or needs clothing. And you're like, hey, I hope it all works out for you. My thoughts and prayers are with you. You know, let me know when it gets a little better. I hate that for you. Sorry to hear that. But then you go on your way and you don't give them any food or clothes. He says, what good is that? It's useless. It's the not my problem kind of faith. It's like, hey, I got enough of my own problems to be concerned with helping people out out there. And so you could take a look at your life And you can try to figure out how much of my life is spent taking care of old number one and how much of my life is spent 
taking care of the needs of others. Because what James is presenting here is that if there's needs of other people going on and you ignore them, you turn your back on them, you don't help them, it doesn't matter what you say and it doesn't matter what you pray. That faith is worthless. The real faith, saving faith, real Jesus kind of faith is when you see a need and you're thinking, Jesus would help that person, I'm going to help him. John said it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. He said, how could you possibly see a brother or sister in need and close your heart against them and think that God's love lives inside of you? It doesn't. It doesn't. It's the not my problem kind of faith. Everybody's got problems. I'm busy taking care of my own. If that's your kind of faith, it doesn't matter if you say all the right things or if you know all the right things or how many church services you've been to. None of that matters. James is saying that's a dead faith that doesn't save you. The second example he gives I called the to each his own faith. The to each his own faith. And uh, he kind of presents these two people in an argument. He says, imagine you get into this disagreement or this argument and one guy says, hey, you have your faith and you have your works. Or I have my faith, and you have your works. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. Now this is all over the world today. As long as you believe something, you're good to go. Your faith is pure and real. You'll get eternal life. You'll live with God. You're right with the Lord. It's the to each his own faith. I believe what I believe, and you believe what you believe, and as long as we're all believing something, isn't that, I mean, as long as we're trying to be the right kind of person, isn't that right? And James is like, no, no, no. You can say you have faith, but your work should show that you have faith. I don't know how you're going to show anybody you've got faith. I'll show them my faith by my works. You can't piece out your own religion and decide, this happens all the time, too. People read through the Bible, and they kind of pull out the parts they like, and they adopt those. You know what I mean? And then the parts that they're uncomfortable with, they kind of just, like, skim over those or don't read those parts very often. And James is like, that's a dead faith. A, de a, a dead faith is the kind of faith that picks and chooses what they're going to follow from Jesus. You don't get to pick your own religion, design it around your likes. You get to submit to Jesus and do what he says. Your faith should drive you to act like Jesus. And if it doesn't, it's dead faith. It's the to each his own faith. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say, I am a way. And so while it might seem socially acceptable and while it might seem like super woke of you or super, super tolerant of you to say like all roads lead to God, as long as you're trying to be a good person, as long as you worship some deity, as long as you whatever, you'll get to heaven someday. And James is like, no way. Saving faith, real faith, faith that works in the real world is a faith that submits itself to Jesus and only Jesus. You got it? Example number three you get. This is the one I don't like the most because it's convicting, you know, but it's like I call it the demon level faith. The demon level faith. Did you hear that example in there? He says, okay, you believe that there's one God. 
Good for you, he says. Good for you. Even the demons believe that. In fact, they go one step farther. They're afraid of God. They tremble at him. They believe there's one God. Think about it just for a second. I mean, how stupid do we think Satan is? You think Satan doesn't believe there's a God? He lived with him for a while. You think he doesn't know Jesus was a real person? You think he doesn't know that Jesus died on the cross? That Jesus rose from the dead? You think he doesn't know that Jesus is God's son? And yet time and time again, if you ask somebody, how do you know your faith is real? How do you know you're a Christian? The answers you get are all those things. Well, I believe in God. Well, I believe in Jesus. Well, I believe Jesus died and rose from the dead. Well, I believe Jesus is the son of God. The devil believes all those same things. And on top of that, he fears the Lord. James says, this is fake faith. This is demon level faith. Where you just know a bunch of stuff. It's kind of an intellectual ascent where you accumulate all these facts and you sit in church long enough to hear enough sermons and you read enough daily bread devotionals to figure out what the truth actually is up here. But 18 inches away down in your heart, it never makes the transition. It never changes anything about you. You just know what to say. You know all the truth. It just hasn't set you free. You know all the answers. It just hasn't changed any of your actions. Demon level faith. Romans 10 verse 9 and 10 says, If you will confess with your mouth, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, verse 9, let me show you in that verse what Satan doesn't believe. You ready? Because that's what we want to believe, right? If I want faith that saves, I better have faith beyond the demons, at least. Okay? What Satan doesn't believe, what the demons don't believe, is that Jesus is their Lord. They would never bow their knee to Jesus. They would never do what Jesus says to do if they didn't want to. They would never surrender control of their life to him. They're going to be their own boss, their own God, do their own thing. Example number four he gives. I called it the, the price is wrong faith. The price is wrong. The price is right. That's like a TV show for all you people under 30 in here. Some of them may not know that, but. The price is wrong faith. And he says, he gives, now he gives an example of the positive. Verse 21, it starts, where he talks about Abraham. He says, consider Abraham for a second. Abraham is just like us, right? But his, he was proved to have faith in God. He was proved to have saving faith by what he did. What did he do? God told him, take your son, your only son Isaac, and go kill him. And Abraham didn't do that. God stopped him before he did it, but Abraham was willing to do it. He travels up a mountain with his son, ties him down to an altar, holding the knife over him. And just before he can thrust the knife into his son and kill him, God says, stop, don't do it. Now I know. Now I know that you love me. Now I know that your faith is genuine. Yeah, he was considered a friend of God and he was considered right with God because of his faith, but his faith was proved out by his actions. And this is the price is wrong because I think when you get to most people, they're checked out on this. You look them in the eye and you say, faith in Jesus is going to cost you your kids. They're out. They're out. How many of us are strapping our kids down to the altar if Jesus asked us to? We're out. 
The price is too high. The price is wrong. And yet James seems to indicate that real faith, true faith, is faith like Abraham had. Saving faith is faith where you would give up anything, any relationship, for the sake of Jesus. So how do I do that? You tell me to kill my kids? No, don't call children and use services on me after church. I'm not saying that. Here's how Jesus said it. Let me read it to you in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. He said, a large, crowd, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison hate everyone else. Your father, your mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus telling you to hate your kids? Nope. He's saying you should love him so much. Your commitment to him should be so great. Your works that you do in his name ought to be so amazing and constant and frequent that by comparison, it looks like you hate the rest of the people in your life. You look at your own faith. We're evaluating ourselves, right? Is that your faith? Where people would be confused? If somebody said, who's the most important person in your life? Would their answer be Jesus? So often people will be like, oh man, that guy's family. He loves his family. And we wear that like it's some badge of honor that I've put my family on the top of the list. James is saying that's dead faith. If Jesus is second, he's last. And I don't like it either. I love my family. I don't like it either. I'm with you. But sometimes you just got to look at the truth. And so Abraham obeys God even when it didn't make sense. Here's the fifth example he gave. I call it the too risky for me. The too risky for me faith. Gives this example of uh, uh, Rahab the hooker from the Old Testament. She wouldn't even make it through the doors of most of our churches today. There'd be somebody there asking her to go clean up her act before she got there. But Rahab the prostitute, living inside the walls of Jericho, a Canaanite, not a Jewish person, a Gentile like us, probably most of us in the room, if not all of us. And she's going to give up her, her culture. She's going to betray her own nation, her own city to the Israelites, help their spies get an advantage because she's following God. Yahweh. And so she takes these spies and hides them in her house and then helps them sneak out the wrong way. And it could have cost her her life. Had they caught her, they'd have executed her. Pretty risky. That's what real faith looks like. It's risky. And I just want you to look at your own life and just ask the question, when was the last time I risked anything for Jesus? And she's risking everything. Here's how Jesus said this one in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, Jesus said, not just to his disciples, just for the record, calling the crowd, all of us. Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Let's just get real for a second. He's asking you to give up your life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the good news. I'm just asking you, when was the last time you even told somebody the good news? Let alone give up your life for it. I mean, the average American quote-unquote Christian, 
They, they bail if the air conditioning's out in their church. You know, if they're a little tired that morning, they're going into shutdown mode all day. They're not talking to somebody about their faith. They'll sit in church for 60 years and never tell one person how to have eternal life and think they've got a faith that saves. A little too risky for them. They might think I'm a jerk if I talk to them about my faith. They might reject me if I tell them about Jesus. This is hard truth, but like if you look at these things, is this our faith? Do we have dead faith or living faith? I, I just, I know it's confusing. You read through and it's like, is James saying you got to do a bunch of good things to get into heaven? Obviously not. If you were here in week one, he covered that. In chapter one, verses 17 and 18, he said every good gift comes from God and God chose us to be a special possession with his grace. Salvation is only by grace, but don't walk around saying that Jesus saved you and he's transformed you into this new person and you're the exact same old person you used to be. James is saying, that's phony. You've tricked yourself. It's foolish. You do good things not to earn God's favor. You do good things because of God's favor. Think about it for a second. My wife and I, we've been married for, I can't remember. It's not good. 18 and a half years. We've been married for umpteen years. You know what umpteen is? Umpteen is like if you're old school in the South, anything over like 12 is umpteen. So it can be like 80 or 18, it's umpteen, right? And then Noah hit me with new school last night. New school is you say we've been married for a minute. That can mean anything. Because Noah told me he'd see me in a minute. It was like an hour and a half later he showed up. I was like, he said he'd be here in a minute. So a minute or umpteen. Now, Stephanie and I have been married for a minute or for umpteen years. And... Uh, Every once in a while, I still do something nice for her. Pretty rare. It's more rare than it should be, you know. And every once in a while, I say something nice to her. And every once in a while, the two of us will go out for like a date, just the two of us, stuff like that. Now, why do I do all that? Like, do I think if I go out on a date with her this week, we'll be more married? Like, I got all the married I was going to get when we took our vows and walked down the aisle, Right? But, but you don't shut off doing good things for your spouse the day you get married. If you do, you, you, you might as well just go ahead and sign the divorce papers now, I guess. But it's like you don't shut it off the day you get married. No, you keep doing good things for them. Not to get them to love you, but because you love them, right? I don't do good things for my wife hoping she'll be more my wife. I do them because she is my wife. I don't do good things because I want Jesus to save me. I do good things because Jesus saved me. You get it? I don't do good things to become more of a Christian. I do good things because I am a Christian. My belief drives my behavior. And if I say I'm following Jesus and I believe in him and I've surrendered my whole life to him, then it will change the way I live. And if it doesn't, then James is saying it's fake. It's phony faith. And I shared this last week, but I just want to share it again because it's basically the same subject. And I want to just share it again because it drives the point home so well for me. story I heard Francis Chan tell about a decade ago uh, of how, like, you ever play Simon Says growing up? Anybody ever play Simon Says? And so it's like Simon Says, you just have to do whatever Simon Says, right? And so if Simon Says jump, you have to jump. And if Simon Says, like, rub your belly, you got to rub your belly. But you only do it if Simon Says. And then you come to church, and following Jesus is supposed to be just like Simon Says except you use the word Jesus instead of Simon. 
So if Jesus says it, I do it. If Jesus says it, I believe it. If Jesus tells me it's true, no matter how obscure or how divisive or how, uh, how crazy it sounds, I buy it because Jesus said it. But then you, but you come into church and like somehow in Christianity in America, we've twisted it all around and we don't have to do what Jesus says. Like Jesus says is like a whole different game where we don't have to do what he tells us to do. We just have to memorize it. And so like if we read about it, then that's okay. That's good. And we can quote it. And I said last week, it'd be like if I had my kids and I said to my kids, like, I want you to go clean your room. And then an hour later, they came back into the room and said, did you guys clean your room? They said, no, Dad, we didn't clean our room, but I really thought about what you said. And I memorized it. And I could say it back to you just like you said it to me. You know, in fact, I got some of my friends coming over later tonight. We're going to have a Sunday school class and talk about what it would look like if I actually did clean my room. And somehow that passes today for real faith. That I don't have to do what Jesus says as long as I memorize it or post it on Facebook. Then I'm good to go. And James is calling, at, calling us out on that. Now let me go back. And take out all the examples that he just shared with us. And just read for you the principle that he keeps repeating every time. I'm going to take out all the examples and just read you the principle he keeps repeating. Here it is. You ready? He says, so you see, faith by itself, unless it produces good deeds, is dead and useless. How can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? We are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Over and over and over and over again, he repeats the same principle, giving us example after example. <clears throat> and he's not saying you're saved by works. He's saying that there's a living faith that saves and a dead faith that doesn't. That you can say all the right things, you can even believe all the right things, but if it doesn't change anything about the way you are or the way you live, it's dead and useless. Someone once said it this way, it costs you nothing to become a Christian, but everything to live as one. And being right with God is determined by faith alone, but it's demonstrated by our faith in action. What James is really teaching us last week and this week is that there's a faith that works and there's a faith that's worthless. Do you get it? Have you heard it? Because much to probably my wife, my wife's you know, disapproval, I've had to keep repeating the same examples over and over. Do you get it? It's so important that he had to keep saying it to us over and over because he's not talking to the God-hating atheist. He's, hate, he's talking to the one that says, I'm a Christian but has some kind of faith that doesn't actually save. A dead faith. That's what scares me. That you'd be sitting here thinking you're good with God and all the while you'd be no better than a demon and you don't even know it. And someday you'll stand in front of God and he'll look at you and he'll say things like Jesus told us he was gonna say in the Bible. Where he said, why do you keep calling me Lord when you won't do the things I say to do? When he says there will be many on that day that say, Lord, didn't we do great things for you? Didn't we cast out demons and prophesy in your name? 
And Jesus will look at him and say, depart from me, I don't even know who you are. Over and over, this message is repeated in the Bible, and somehow we read over and just hear whatever we want to hear. Somehow we put together our own faith. And that's somebody else's problem, not my problem. You believe what you believe, and I'll believe what I believe, and I know all the right answers, and give up my children, walk away from my children to serve the Lord, sacrifice my own life. If the gun was to my head in some Middle Eastern country, do you follow Jesus or not? Would I cave? And we've pieced together our own religion and convinced ourselves we're good to go. And Jesus tells this fascinating story in Matthew chapter 25 about what it's going to look like at the end of time. If you're like in a theology class in seminary, something they call this the sheep and goat judgment. I don't know. It's not very creative because it just says sheep and goats in it, but either way. And so Jesus describes this scene at the end of time. And he says he'll be sitting on the throne and everybody will be gathered together in front of him. And he's going to separate, he says, the sheep from the goats. The sheep are his genuine children. The ones that love him and have followed him and trusted him. He says, I'm going to separate them to the right. And then he says, I'm going to take all the goats and I'm going to separate them off to the left. Goat and sheep is like euphemism for people. You guys get that right? Okay. So they're, just, they're in college. They don't know any better. So... He said, I'm going to separate all the sheep to the right and all the goats to the left. And then he says who the sheep and goats are. He says, the sheep are the ones who, when I was hungry, fed me. When I was naked, they clothed me. When I was sick, they cared for me. When I was in prison, they visited me. When I was thirsty, they gave me a drink. And then he says to the goats, he says, the goats are all the people that when they saw me hungry, they didn't feed me. When they saw me thirsty, they didn't give me anything to drink. When they saw me in prison, they didn't come visit me. When, they, when I was naked, they didn't clothe me. And when I was sick, they didn't care for me. And all those goats are going to look at Jesus and be like, Jesus, when did we ever not do that for you? We, we would have done that for you, Jesus. We were yours. And Jesus says to them, it's like, when you refused to treat other people that way, it's like you were treating me that way. When you refuse to serve others, when you refuse to do good works for others, when you refuse to obey how I told you to treat everyone else, it's like you were smacking me in the face. Now that all makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense to me is that Jesus says to the sheep the exact same thing that they did. That when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was sick, you took care of me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. All that same stuff. And they look at him and they say, when did we ever do that? I'm thinking, if I'm that guy, I, I would like to be like, you're right, Jesus. I crushed it. You know, I'm all proud. It's like they don't even know. It's like I'm just busy obeying Jesus and I don't even know if it's him or an angel or some stranger or some atheist. Or, I don't even know. I'm just busy doing what Jesus says to do. I'm putting my head down and I'm Simon says in this world. If Jesus says it, I'm just jumping. I'm just patting my belly. Whatever he tells me to do, I'm doing it. And I'm not looking up till I get to the right side at the end of time. And he says, hey, man, when you saw that person hungry, you fed him. That was legit faith. When you were poor, you still gave. When you had your own family, you still walked away from him sometime to serve others. I saw that time when nobody was looking. And instead of playing with your kids or, or, or hanging out with your wife or going to the golf course with your buddies, 
Instead of all that, you sat down and read your Bible. I saw that. And every time you did those things, when you were doing it to those who couldn't pay you back, he calls them the least of these, the people that can't pay you back, when you're serving those people, it's like you're serving me. That's the scene at the end of the time. He's not going to separate us based on how much we know, based on how many church services we've been to, based on how many verses we can quote back to him. He's going to separate us based on the way our faith drove our actions. Do you get it? This is what James is talking about. I've told our church, I've told our church this many times in the past, so I just want to say it again. What saves you is not a magic prayer. There's no magic prayer in the Bible. You ever heard see people say, if you just pray the sinner's prayer, there's no such thing in the Bible as the sinner's prayer. I get what they're trying to say. It's legit. It's like they're trying to package the gospel simply for people. But there's no magic words to say and have God abracadabra over your life to save you. That's not how it works, James is saying. It doesn't matter what card you've signed or what aisle you've walked down or what the pastor told you when you were growing up. None of that saves you. If your parents were the best Christians in the world, someday when you stand in front of God, that won't make you a sheep. The only thing that will matter is the stance of your heart towards God. And what James is saying is if the stance of your heart is surrendered, then your actions will show that. You will say you have faith, but you will also show you have faith. And so I ask you today, what is the stance of your heart towards God? I'll give you about all the choices I can think of. Can I do that? Here's all the choices I can think of. Maybe the stance of your heart is like with your middle finger up at him, flipping God off, telling him, you're not gonna tell me what to do. I'll do what I wanna do. Maybe the stance of your heart is with your head hung down and you're so ashamed of the stuff you've done. You think God would never love me. I want you to know he loves you more than anything. He wasn't waiting until you cleaned up your act. He was looking at Rahab the prostitute and he was like, I'll save you right now. He's not waiting until you clean up to come to him. You come to him, he'll worry about all the cleanup later. Maybe your stance to God is like, whatever, whatever. It's good for some people, but not for me. Maybe your stance to God is like, hey, that's their problem, not mine. Maybe your stance to God is just indifference. Maybe your stance to God is like, I kind of like you, but the price is too high. The price is too high. I'm not going to be all in. And maybe you like God and you like the idea of following Jesus, but like not if it's going to cost you your life. In fact, not if it's even going to cost you your hobbies. Not if it's going to cost you some time. I don't know. But this is what I do know from the Bible. There's only one stance that actually saves. Can I show it to you? This is it. Is that the stance of your heart towards God? You know what this is? This is the universal sign for I surrender. You go to some country on earth that doesn't speak English and you stick your gun in their face, they're going to do that. Because everybody in the world knows I give up is I put my hands in the air. And it's like God is looking at us saying like, will you surrender or not? I'll save you, but only if you're willing to surrender. You don't get to pray a magic prayer. I let you into heaven and then you do whatever you feel like doing. That's not surrender. 
I ask God to save me, and I surrender to him at the same time. It's the two sides of the one coin that is Christianity. That's what Christianity is. It's, it's I need to be saved because I can't save myself. And at the exact same time, I need to surrender to God because of who his son is. So I surrender and he saves me all in one moment, makes me a brand new creation. And James says it will change everything about your life. And if it doesn't, it's worthless. So I ask you just to evaluate your own life. You can be saved today and you can surrender your life today. And in that moment, if you do that, God will give you eternal life that starts right this moment. And so if you're here today and you've looked at your faith and you think, I have faith, but I don't know if it's saving faith. Now's the day. Now's the time. We've done every possible thing we can think of to do to eliminate all the things blocking you from following Jesus. Everything. I mean, I, I, we're intentional about it. We got the lights low so you don't think anybody's looking at you. We fed you so your stomach won't be growling for the next 10 minutes. We brought the water to you. <laughs> you know, you're like, I showed up. I don't have a towel. We brought you a towel. You're like, I don't have any clothes. We brought you clothes. You think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. I promise there's clothes in the back for you. If you want to lay down your life, give up your life now to find it. If you want to surrender everything you are to Jesus in exchange for him saving you, and it will change everything about your life moving forward, and it will give you eternity with him. You can do it. You don't need me to tell you the magic words. Just tell him. Just tell him. Just tell him you want to be saved, and you're trusting only in him. Tell him you want to surrender, and he's worth it. The thief on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say any magic prayer. All he said was, remember me. The words mean nothing. The stance of your heart means everything. So I ask you, will you surrender to Jesus or will you keep walking around like a dead man's faith? You go to a funeral sometime and it doesn't matter how great a job they did making the person up, how great of a job the, the stylist did on their hair, how pretty the outfit was that the spouse brought them to put them in. They're still dead in that casket. You can dress it up however you want. You can speak all the right words. You can call yourself a Christian. You can think you're right with God because you know the facts. But James is saying that faith is useless. Will you follow Jesus and ask him and him alone to save you? So I put it on you now. And if you want to get baptized, we're going to baptize some people after you hear some of their stories. We're going to baptize some people after that. If you want to follow Jesus and get baptized, just get up, come to the back. We'll give you clothes, give you a towel. You can come up front, we'll baptize you. You don't owe anything to me. You're not following me. You don't have to prove anything to me. You do business with God. If you want to follow Jesus and be saved, have a faith that actually works, you can do that right where you're at. If you'd like to talk, talk about it more, just come on to the back. We'll talk to you about it. Whatever it takes. I want to do whatever it takes for you to experience the truth and grace of Jesus and to know what it's like to walk in newness of life. Can I pray for you and then we'll watch these videos? Dear Heavenly Father, it's a hard truth. It's a hard truth that we don't get to pick our own faith, that we have to do exactly what you say, that sometimes it's things we don't like and sometimes it's things we're uncomfortable with. But God, I pray right now that you would 
empower the people in this room with your courage because it's going to take courage. It's going to take courage to step out in faith, to walk to the back, to get some clothes, to come up and let the whole world know I'm with Jesus. No turning back. But God, would you give people in this room the courage right now? You can keep your eyes closed for just a second. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. We don't don't really do that. But I just want to challenge you guys in something while your eyes are closed. You're talking to God just by yourself. If you're here and you're already a Christian, you've decided after hearing this truth from God's word, my faith is saving faith. Will you pray for all those other people in the room right now? Because it's terrifying. It's terrifying to stand up in front of 150 people and walk to the front and declare to everybody, I know my life is screwed up. I know you might look at me and think, I don't do anything but the wrong thing. But from this day forward, I want to follow Jesus the way he says. I want him to save me. It's it's terrifying to do that. So would you pray for them to have courage? And I just want to throw this out, that God kept like putting this on my heart all week. I know there are men in this room that are living like cowards when they should be leading with courage. I know it. I know it. We've raised up a generation of wimpy men that have no courage for anything that matters. And I'm just calling on the men in the room to lead the way. And if you haven't laid down your life for Jesus, to lay it down now and to get out of your seat and tell everybody you're following him by getting baptized. And I know there are women in this room that are living scared. They haven't been living with courage. They've been living scared. And their children have become their God. Their careers have become their God. I know it. Because in a room this size, there has to be people living that way. And we can sing all the worship songs you like and provide the best setting we can and give you all the truth from God's word. But in the end, it's always going to be your choice to choose this day who you're going to serve. And so I'm calling on the women in the room to set the example for people in their lives too. To finally have the courage to surrender to Jesus. Say from this day forward, whatever you say goes, Jesus. I won't be perfect, but I'm going to be moving in the right direction. Because it's not about perfection, it's about direction. Jesus was all the perfect we need. I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be surrendered. So I'm calling on you guys right now to just spend the next couple minutes doing business with God. And if you need to, for the first time in your life, tell God you want to have a real faith that saves, tell him. And then step out of your seat with courage and follow Jesus right to the waters of baptism. And we'll baptize you. In heaven, call on you right now to just gather around us and celebrate with us. Angels, Jesus, all the saints that have gone before. And we want to celebrate your goodness to reach into our world and rescue us from death. Blown away, God, how much I mess up as a pastor, how much we mess up as a church, and how you just keep saving people. You are so good, God. And I want to see that picture at the end of time. And I want to be a sheep. I want to be one who gives you everything I have because of everything you are. Would you just give people in our room the courage to walk out in faith and do that same thing today. In Jesus' name I pray. What an amazing challenge from God's Word for all of us. We hope you will start putting everything you've learned in this session into practice. And be sure to subscribe to the 3SC Podcast so you'll never miss any new content. Thanks for listening.